This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. When there are more ways to be together, there are more ways to be a team. Coming up on The Jordan Harbinger Show. The magical thinking wasn't where I went wrong. It was how I embarked on that. And I embarked on it by lying and trying to take a shortcut. One thing Jayla taught me is like our brains are constantly trying to give us excuses or reasons not to take the hard path, not to put in the hard work and not to make ourselves suffer. And that's what we need to embrace. We need to acknowledge that and say, you know what, the hard path is the right way. It's not worth it to take this work on to go faster because things don't work. So I made the bad decision to lie to try to get what I wanted faster than I deserved to get it. And that's where I totally fucked up. Welcome to the show. I'm Jordan Harbinger. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the world's most fascinating people. If you're new to the show, we have in-depth conversations with people at the top of their game. Astronauts and entrepreneurs, spies and psychologists, even the occasional con man. Each show turns our guests' wisdom into practical advice you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world works and become a better critical thinker. Today, like I said, the occasional con man. Look, he's serving his time in prison. I'm gonna give the guy a little bit of a break. Maybe you've heard of the absolute catastrophe that was Firefest. Maybe you even had tickets. You know, that event with Ja Rule and a ton of Instagram influencers who swear they'd had no idea that any of this was going on. The whole thing was wrapped in sex appeal. It was supposed to be the Woodstock of our generation. People quit their jobs to go. People were selling their possessions to pay for these tickets. And this ended up being a bunch of rich millennials stranded in the Bahamas sleeping in FEMA tents. Yeah, that Firefest. Few events, especially events that never even happened, warrant not one, but two documentaries. So many things had to go right to make it this big of a failure. Today, Billy McFarland, the man behind Firefest, is on the show today. Well, he's not here here. He's actually serving a six-year sentence in federal prison for fraud, among other things. He's speaking to us today here on The Jordan Harbinger Show before The New York Times, before Vanity Fair and everyone else. So I'm pretty excited about this, especially as he's pretty candid in today's conversation. Or is he? I'll let you be the judge. Again, we did this one remotely while he's in a federal prison, so the audio quality is not what you're used to here from The Jordan Harbinger Show. That said, well, I think it adds a little something, don't you? If you're wondering how I managed to book all these interesting guests, many of which are not behind bars, well, it's because of my network. And for this one, I, let's just say I got friends in low places. I'm teaching you how to build your network for free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. And by the way, many of the guests on the show, they subscribe to the course in the newsletter, unless, of course, they are locked up with no internet. Come join us. You'll be in smart company. All right, here's Billy McFarland. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from... William... McFarland. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hang up to decline the call or to accept. Dial 5 now. This is Jordan Harbinger from the Jordan Harbinger Show. How you doing? Jordan, nice to meet you. I'm uh, laying in the bed I made here, Jordan. So how's your mood these days? How are your spirits? It's just super up and down here. We've been on some sort of lockdown since March due to corona. And that basically consists of just getting stuck in this giant warehouse room with like 160 guys and not being able to go outside too much. So that kind of sucks. I think I've just made the situation far worse for myself than I had to. By messing up on bail, I went to solitary confinement for three months, got transferred to a higher security facility much further from friends and family. Comedy of errors caused by my mistakes. But I am thankful for that solitary experience. And I think it really just changed my perspective on a daily basis, which will try to dedicate myself towards helping everybody that I let down. Where are you right now? I know you got transferred. So I'm in Elkton, Ohio, and what some friends told me when you Google Elkton, Ohio, the Google description of the town is pretty nice, except for the razor wire views. So I think the jail is the entire town, and certainly not nice. How come you moved from Club Fed in New York to Otisville to Ohio? What, what happened there? So taking a step back, I had my bail revoked and was sent to Brooklyn MDC, where I was for seven months. And that was just awful, you know, full of violence. You're, you're stuck inside. It was really kind of a brutal place. And then from there, went to Otisville, which was in upstate New York. And the good thing about Otisville was I was relatively close to New York, so close to family and friends who were able to come. And then once again, got in trouble there after only being there for six months and was sent to solitary confinement, which they call this shoe. In Otisville. So after three months in solitary, 
I was flown on Con Air towards a couple places and then finally ended up in this higher security place and compared to where I was at in Elkton, Ohio. So it was kind of a crazy journey that I did to myself. But ultimately, those like three months I spent in solitary, which we can hopefully talk about, I think were just like the best thing to happen when you're just reduced to absolutely nothing, the forced reflection and confrontation with reality about the seriousness of my mistakes, I think really improved my mindset and was able to help me understand just how seriously I hurt people and hopefully dedicate myself towards helping them in some small way. And why did you get transferred? You didn't say what that was. Do you mind sharing that? I had a USB device. USB device, so like a flash drive? Exactly. I was working on my memoir. And it kind of gets back to the overall theme of I was just trying to go too fast, you know, once again. Oh, so you've written a book or you're writing a book and are you writing it by hand now? Or Yeah, I, I wrote two books. I wrote one fiction book and a memoir, wrote them by hand and then mailed them out to different friends and team members. And they, of course, typed it up and are getting those books edited. And it kind of gets back to the overall theme of I was just trying to go too fast, you know, once again. What's it like being moved to a new prison, because it kind of sounds like the first day of school, only the consequences. It's not necessarily bullying we're worried about, or maybe it's bullying turned up to 11. <laughs> Good question. The hardest thing is the distance from family. And as you've seen with getting these calls organized and getting everybody on the same page, communication is just so tough from here. And just like hearing the calls from family and loved ones where they need you, they need to talk to you, they need you to be there. And you just can't be there, and you're so far away from them physically, so it's hard to come and actually see you. That's tough. And it just gets back to this bigger theme that you know every just mistake hurts a lot more people than you would think when that mistake is being made. So the distance has been the overall, the overall toughest thing. On a less important level, getting moved around sucks. And due to COVID, we've been moving around different like housing units. So I felt like I've had five different introductions to prison over the past like three months here. And obviously, it's getting along with new groups of people and new groups of people. You know, jail is jail, and that all sucks. But at the end of the day, the worst punishment is just like hearing those calls for help or for love or support from family and loved ones and not being able to be there for them. And that's just, it really sucks. When you say getting along with different groups of people, are you talking about, like, I mean, everyone knows there's prison gangs and stuff, but how prevalent is that where you are? Like, do you fear for your safety or is it more like, is it just hard to connect with people in general because you're behind bars? It's, it'd be, it's hard to be unknown. Like, you can wake up and, you know, get told to do anything, whether it's by staff, inmates, et cetera. You just never know what's going to happen the next day. You see a lot of crazy shit that if you told me actually happened, you know, three years ago, I would have laughed in your face and said, no way the world is run like that. But it's kind of eye-opening. And I definitely felt like I was sheltered in terms of my perspective and exposure to uh, how some things actually happen. Where I am is, it's safe. It's definitely safe. It's more of being locked in a room with 150 personalities. And it's just like the human aspect of that. But once again, that just completely pales in comparison to what this does to family and friends and people that care about you and you care about them. How was solitary confinement? I mean, I know that's a ridiculous question. It's not like, how was your vacation? But how was essentially being locked in a box? Like, that sounds terrible. It really makes you think. And I think the biggest takeaway was I was just surrounded by a lot of, like, lost and forgotten men in the solitary place where I was, it was also kind of like this transit solitary place, which basically means guys who couldn't be placed in a regular jail facility, you know, of any security level from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low were put there. And, you know, there was one guy who's serving a 30 year sentence and he was already locked in the same room for over three and a half years when I was there. He wasn't allowed to have a cellmate. He couldn't like go outside with anybody. And it really just helps put things in perspective where you realize one, just how fortunate you really were, which makes the mistakes all the worse. And two, it helps you recenter. And it's like, if you just can't do something to make one of these guys' days a little bit better who are just locked in the hole for decades, then you're really worthless. So I really appreciate how it just kind of recentered and refocused the mindset on creating like value through good. Whereas I think I lost track of that in the days leading up to my mistakes before. What do you do to stay sane? when you are in a solitary confinement situation? Are you doing push-ups every day? I mean, what do you even do just to not lose it? I tried to teach myself to write, so I wrote a couple of books and really just started the thinking through the apology process and what's that like. I wrote a lot of letters to people that I hurt, and I think I learned just as much writing to them as I did from their response, and that really just helped me understand the gravity of this and how I need to approach it moving forward. What kind of responses did you get from people who you reached out to since you were in there? 
I've spoken with some members of the team, and I think the concept of now being in jail for, what, 27 months, I'm really surprised by who I speak with and also surprised by who I don't speak with. And some people are furious that it took so long and said, what were you waiting for? I was waiting to hear from you. Others said, we're just not ready to hear from you yet, and we never want to hear from you again. So it's kind of like a mixed bag. And that made me realize the apology process is just so different for everybody. And I need to respect that. I need to realize, you know, some people are just based on what I did or just hurt so much. And what I really did was beyond any financial damage or reputational damage, which is obviously terrible in itself, is I violated trust. And now being in a situation for the past couple of years where, you know, I live by trusting other people and being in jail and what that entails, just how serious it is to violate trust. And it kind of stings you in your core realizing what you actually did and then why it was so bad. Who are you surprised is not talking to you anymore? When people were around for a lot of the good, a common kind of game people will play is, oh, this person's only there for the fun or, or this person's there for everything. And some of the people who I expected to only be there for the, for the good times have been really, really dedicated and got out of their way to help me as much as they could, even though I hurt them in so many ways. And some of the people who I expected to, you know, still be there aren't there. And that's kind of been an eye-opening experience where it was just, it's, it's really hard to tell, but none of this would have happened if I didn't mess up. So it's totally my fault. So in the past, Firefest fell apart. There've been two documentaries, which I guess you haven't seen those, right? The documentaries? No, and if I had the chance to, I don't think I could bring myself to watch, but... You don't think you would watch them? You're not curious? The curiosity would get to me, man, I'm, I'm telling you. I think it's kind of cool how much prison like, keeps away from you in terms of developing a clear mind. But at the same time, like, nothing is harder than, you know, hearing a snippet, you know, of what's going on with your family that's not going well, or what's going on in the world, or a negative story or somebody getting hurt because then you hear this like little snippet of information and you just can't act on it. We have 15 minute calls and during normal times we're limited to 300 minutes a month. So it's only 20 calls a month. So if you use a call or two to hear about like an ailing family member or something negative going on in the world, then you just walk away and you're just stuck. And it really took me a while to realize that both family and friends that you speak with, as well as like me being here, have our emotional needs that we try to get out of those 15 minutes. And it took me a while to realize like it needs to be calibrated from both ends. And we're both going through different experiences. And arguably, it's harder on the family than it is on the inmate. But how to like calibrate all of our needs that we have into 15 minutes, you know, a few times a week. And it's just, it's hard as hell, man. But that's kind of what we're going through. I've heard you've been busy in prison teaching music entrepreneurship. What's that all about? So when I got to Brooklyn, I taught a class on the vocation of music. And we actually finished the class with a talent show where we brought in speakers and everything and had the students perform to the cell block. So that was pretty cool. And then uh, since coming to Elkton, I launched a project with Mike called Project 315. When coronavirus was first hitting, they canceled all the visits here, and a lot of people's families were struggling, and they weren't able to talk to them. So we funded a little initiative to provide phone calls between inmates and families. And then like five days after we launched, the BOP made phone calls free for everyone. And that was certainly the first time I'd ever seen or heard of that. So that was pretty cool to see that the problem we were going after was real and that a good solution was provided. What draws you to teaching? There are just so many people who I've gotten to meet here who just have the craziest life stories, who are serving just absurd amounts of time. We're talking 20, 30, 40 years. And at the end of the day, they all still have some good in their hearts. And a lot of them have talent, too. And I was a big believer before jail, or I guess I would argue that everybody in America had opportunity. And while that still might be true, I think I was totally wrong. Just opportunities so far from equal across the board. And I just felt like so many people lack exposure, and that just completely limited the opportunity and chances they had in life for. And seeing this talent, you know, go unused, it just sucks, man, and it, and it makes you feel for a lot of people and a lot of families who are struggling from this cycle. And I think for the first time in decades, just talking to inmates, the system is starting to change. Something called the First Step Act was passed a couple of years ago, which aims to provide you know more programming and more education for a lot of people, which is great. And now the BOP is taking a proactive approach to population control to you know making these places more manageable. So I think the political administration has taken an approach that hasn't been seen in many decades, and a lot of inmates here are fortunate for that. And I think if it's given the proper opportunity, some will grasp it. And that's all you can really ask, because if you can change one or two families by giving everybody here a chance, that's really cool. 
So if all these changes that are happening to the prison system can give inmates a chance, like that's going to change some families' lives. And some people are going to take those opportunities and take them seriously. And I think that's really cool that that's finally being seen and changed from the administration, the BOP. What will teaching music entrepreneurship, for example, what will that help you achieve, if anything, after a release? So there's so many guys in Brooklyn who I just never would have come across in my life and vice versa. And, you know, I had a lot to learn from them and hopefully I could teach them a little bit too. And we came together, it was pretty cool. Some guys there wanted to be on the management side. Some guys wanted to be artists and just sharing life experiences and really just creating a group setting where people who have made mistakes and are serving really greatly for those mistakes to come together and try to create some good. It was fun and it created a way where days are meaningful for a lot of people who didn't have a lot to look forward to and me included. So is this the new Billy that we're hearing or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the fire festival? Like, is this Billy V2? Because a lot of what we're hearing right now, it sounds a lot like what we've heard and seen before. And even when I asked before on our first call, if you were a con man, we had 10 seconds of silence. When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the fuck was I thinking? And I think that applies to so many people and just so many decisions that I made. However, I tried to justify it at the time or shortly after that or for the period after that is wrong and it doesn't matter. And there's just nobody saying I was wrong. And I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact and hopefully actually bring help to those people who I let down. But a lot of people are going to go, ah, you know, he lied before. How do we know this is something different? You know, how do we know that he's not just saying this because he's in prison? I think to start, even if the fire festival was the success and everything that I believed or had hoped is probably a better word that it was going to be came true, I'd still be in jail. I was still guilty. And what I did was I lied to my investors and other partners about the status of our company, how much money we had, how much money we were making to get money that I thought we needed for the festival. So regardless, just I was wrong. But through all these mistakes, I think there was some positive takeaways. And that really was this theme that I'd like to harp on now, that when different people connect who wouldn't usually meet, there's a lot of good and value and innovation that happens there. So there's no way around my mistakes and how bad and serious they were. But if I can use the positive aspects that I learned to do some good, then I think that's a big one. You believe in the value of different types of people meeting that would normally never meet. How do you feel How do you feel that has happened for you in the past few years? I mean, I assume you never thought you would be spending your days with convicted drug dealers and violent criminals and also people that have probably have done similar things as you have, depending on which location you've been locked up in. So my friend here is serving a 26-year sentence. He's 11 years in, and he started a sentence at the famous ADX prison in Florence, Colorado. And I think he is one of the most genuine people that I've met in my entire life, and he has a heart made of complete gold. And it's like so ironic. On paper, he just seems like the worst person in the world. But when you really get to know him, you realize how much good is there. The lessons that I've taken from this are really amazing, but it also shows you that someone who I probably wouldn't have met before just has so much to offer in terms of like a friendship and a relationship and a bond and just so much good and generosity in his heart. I was a big believer before jail that everybody in America had opportunity. While that's probably true, it's just completely unequal across the board. And there's so many little things that could be done to give more people a chance. I'm curious what you think could be done with some of these folks that you've met. I, I volunteer a little bit in prisons as well, and I meet a lot of inmates. And honestly, I think it's a, I say this all the time, it's a warehouse of unmet potential. I mean, I, I do resume screening and I help them prepare for jobs when they get out. And some of these guys, they have ideas and I go, they go, oh, it's probably a dumb idea, but, and then they tell me their business idea. And I, I often am in the position where I have to tell them that not only is that not a dumb idea, but that the company exists and is worth $300, 400000000 million already and, you know, is a franchise company. 1-800-GOT-JUNK is one of those companies that I heard the concept first from an inmate and then looked it up and said, oh, I, this is a very successful company. I assume you've had similar experiences in there where you think, but for this guy being born in the, the hellish inner city of Brooklyn, Detroit, wherever, this person would have been a very successful business owner. I think the one word is exposure exposed to different options, different people, and really just exposed to different career paths. And so my friend and I were talking here about how as a kid, if he could be exposed to other opportunities, how he thought that would have dramatically changed his life. And then around the same time, George Floyd was killed and the entire world started realizing 
about all the racial injustice that exists. And then I realized that exposure just isn't really from one side. It's not just showing guys like who I'm friends with here different things when they were kids. It's also about showing now white people what black people have gone through for the past X hundreds of thousands of years. And so I think the topic of exposure could really help both sides. And just being here, it really helped me see from a ground level how, A, we were only seeing it from one side, and B, just how important that really is for the world as a whole to understand each other and to acknowledge what's going on and to improve on it. Going back to Firefest, a lot of people are thinking, okay, you tried to plan a festival, it didn't really work out, it's happened before, a lot of things get canceled, a lot of events don't work out, but once you knew that the festival wasn't going to go as promised or as planned, why didn't you call it off? It seemed like there were just so many opportunities to say the bands aren't going to make it, the stage isn't going to make it, the toilet plumbing, whatever isn't there. Like, why not stop then? So I think the first thing that needs to be said is I was guilty, and there's absolutely no way around that. I lied to people. I lied to investors. I lied to sponsors. And the lies were around this idea that I had where I needed to raise more money or I thought I needed to raise more money to execute the festival. I did everything I could to try to pull that festival off. Looking back, there were thousands of management decisions I made that were totally wrong and totally incorrect that, of course, contributed to the failure. But at the end of the day, I lied to a lot of people who were supporting me and were supporting the vision, and that's inexcusable. But for the actual event, so a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until, I guess, the last minute and the arrival of people, we thought it was going to work. And 27 of the 30 artists were fully paid, and the other three were paid for the first weekend. It wasn't the fact that artists weren't paid or certain people weren't there. It was due to people getting hurt and not being able to manage the situation. And this stems from a larger overall problem and a lot of management decisions I made leading up to it. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. So before you got the notification, the fake notification that people had died from pig bites and gunshots, you saw a lot of problems. I mean, you even said, and I believe this is from the Hulu documentary, that every day we'd wake up to an issue, we'd solve it, and there'd be another one, which is, by the way, any business that is throwing any kind of event or doing any project runs into issues like that, and you're playing whack-a-mole, right? That's literally every entrepreneurial endeavor ever. At what point did you realize that there was a problem that you could not solve? When I heard people had died. I had been doing events for years with Magnesis, and I was so used to, at that point, people running to me with these problems. They said, we can't do it. We can't proceed for X, Y, and Z reason. And every time we figure out a way to pull off the event and make it worthwhile. So I was kind of in this mode where every problem was surmountable. And I definitely didn't realize how difficult it was to essentially build a city out of nothing in five or six months. And I was totally wrong. And also, they made a lot of really, really bad management decisions along the way which were underlined by lies to investors. While I was wrong, every kind of intent was there, and I wrongly thought that it could be pulled off until the news of those deaths came. You're listening to The Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Billy McFarland. We'll be right back. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a new virtual room. Collaborate live. Building ideas on the same page. And see more of your team on the screen at once. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. And now back to Billy McFarland on The Jordan Harbinger Show. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from... William McFarland. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hang up to decline the call or to accept dial 5 now. Look, you're really good at solving problems. One particular stroke of genius was when you're running out of funds, you decide to make the event cashless so people have to preload wristbands with thousands of dollars. So you got another influx of cash from the attendees outside of the ticket prices. I'm sure you've reflected on this since now that you're behind bars. I mean, if you were running something that was any sort of regular business, you would have been well suited to that. I mean, this is exactly what a lot of entrepreneurs who are flying by the seat of their pants do. It's just you took some steps over the line. Do you see it anyway as a shame that you weren't running, I guess, a real company that did something that didn't turn out to be vaporware? We're planning on doing the festival on an island called Norman's Key. There is barely sewage, let alone 
banks or ATMs, so there's no way having people use ATMs or machines to draw cash is reasonable. The timing of the uh, wristbands was certainly announced to help with our cash flow, but that concept you know, existed far before that. When you solve problems in a business, do you get a sort of thrill from that, or was it just pure stress? I know a lot of business owners, and it's stress, and they're freaking out here and there, but there is, from personal experience, a little bit of a thrill about playing whack-a-mole, maybe not necessarily one problem after another, but solving a problem that comes up and just blasting through obstacles. It gives you a sense of confidence. Did you feel that at all? So the first thing is the decisions I was making for the company were impacting the livelihoods of hundreds of people. You know, if you're supporting families and their children and everything comes along with that, and you need to take every management decision a lot more seriously, and I totally fucked up on that, and that's not fair to those people. In terms of handling problems, I think on a personal level, I handle bad news really weirdly. I like shut down for 30 seconds when receiving the news and kind of feel like the world is over, but then convince myself pretty quickly that all of a sudden this bad news can actually be used as a positive and to turn it into a good thing. And I think that's really good in a lot of situations, but it's also really bad in a lot of situations where I feel like no matter how bad things are or maybe how bad the path I was going down, that could actually make a positive out of that. That's something I, I've grappled with and thought through a lot. But at the end of the day, nothing you know overcomes the fact that people's well-being were rooted in the decisions I was making and beyond the lies to investors, even on the decisions where I thought I was doing the right thing for the company. I needed to be more mature and thoughtful about how I handled them. With all the juggling, such as finding one investor to get a quick infusion of cash in order to pay off another investor or a vendor who's loan or invoice had come due. What's your level of stress like at that point? So we had something called the urgent daily payments document. And basically it was this Google Excel sheet that I'd wake up to every morning. And essentially it was a list of payments that we had to make that day or else the festival couldn't proceed. That was kind of the instructions that the team had in that document. So bank wires close like outgoing at four o'clock. So I wake up at nine. I have, you know, a few hours to get the money in and a few hours to get the money out. And in the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day, where I had to wake up at nine in the morning, find three million dollars by noon, and then make the payments by four. I just went totally wrong in how I raised that money, and there's no excuse. And I wish I could have just woke up one of those mornings in the beginning and just said, stop, you know, you can get help. You have a lot of smart people who are helping you. Things would have been okay. But I didn't have the patience, and I lost my morals with my impatience, and that that's fucked up. Were you feeling the stress or are you kind of, do you feel like you're almost immune to that sort of thing in some way? I think it sucks. The stress is awful. And I kept looking for ways to find excitement, I think is the best way to put it. Make it seem like the stress is worthwhile. So whether it was doing crazy free dives or trying to create explorations or doing things in the air flying that we shouldn't have done, I think I was looking for ways where I could justify the stress that I was enduring. And that's just a road to one place and it's not a very good place. And I think I just learned so much from how awful and terrible that feeling in my style is. And if you just have like transparent motives and purpose with everybody, life is so much better and nothing beats that. What happened to the Fire app? You have any idea? So the concept behind the Fire app was trying to add transparency to the booking process in the entertainment industry. Through my previous company, Magnesis, I was booking a lot of music artists to perform for our members. I just found like the entire process to be so antiquated and just full of smoke and mirrors. Like we had all these offers for artists and they weren't getting there. They were going through all these layers of middlemen who were tacking on fees and not really even understanding what the artists wanted. And the idea for the fire app came when I was talking with Ja after uh, he performed at a Magnesis concert asking why he had rejected our previous offers and he had no idea what I was talking about. So we built the fire app as a way to allow buyers to just contact artists and talent directly through technology. Where the app is now, I'm not sure. The Fire Festival company was forced into bankruptcy. So I'm going to, you know, let that play out and, you know, hope for as much recovery as possible for everybody who's owed. Of course, yeah. Do you ever regret jumping from the app business into the festival business? I think the biggest mistake before I went awry was just setting an unrealistic time frame for the festival. Had we given ourselves a year or two, and had I, you know, obviously not made the terrible decision to lie to my backers, I think we could have been in a better place. But regardless, the mistakes that I made are what made things go wrong. So that's that's where things started and ended. So did you, at the time, knowingly lie to the backers to get their backing? 
I knowingly lied to them to raise money for the festival, yes. And that's what the crime was. The, the crime was just inexcusably lying about the status of our company to get money I thought I needed for the festival. What is the plan for restitution? I think, is the total $26 million? Am I on point there? It's around there, yep. Yeah, so most people work their whole lives. They never even get a fraction of that, right? Well, they technically get a fraction of it. They never get close to that, I guess you would say. What's the plan for that? How are you going to do that? I think the wrong approach for me is to look at the actual dollar figure. And the most important thing is realizing that I violated one of the most like intimate things that I was given, and that was trust. Before anything happens, I need to rebuild that trust. And of course, rebuilding trust includes making financial amends. But I think more importantly is how it's done. So I'd much rather do things the right way and have the financial figures be you know, smaller or less successful than do things inappropriately and try to rush to pay off that amount. So I have no idea how long it will take, but I do know I will dedicate myself towards doing it, and I'm going to do it properly. And what happened to the merch? Like, there was all this merch, the Firefest t-shirts and hats and all that stuff. Where did that end up? I believe that the government has auctioned off the authentic Fire Festival merchandise that I had in my possession that was handed over to them. What we did was go ahead and design a fire line that was inspired by my time in solitary confinement. So it's almost like prison solitary meets fire key. Each piece that we designed accompanies a story of something totally unexpected that happened to me in solitary and really something I was exposed to that I never thought I would be exposed to. And then taking those stories to design a piece of merch, all the proceeds or all my proceeds are going to restitution, but made like a line inspired by solitary confinement, you know, fashion plus island wear. What's an example of a fashion trend that comes from prison? Sagging pants. <laughs> all this, yeah. Yeah, derivation isn't very good, but it comes from jail. Yeah, you know, you hear about that coming from jail, but I, I think the I'm never sure how accurate those kind of, especially when you, when you hear something like that from a, a 65 year old white guy on the news, you're like, is this coming? <laughs> what kind of source am I dealing with right now? You're going to be doing a podcast, which is uh, it's going to be called Dumpster Fire, from what I understand. I uh, love the title. You're going to donate yeah, those proceeds, or not donate, but those proceeds are going to go towards the people that were harmed by Firefest, correct? So I own 50% of the Dumpster Fire podcast, and my entire stake will be given to restitution. I know from personal experience, podcasting can be a great living, but it, it's going to be a stretch to hit $26 million. Do you have other ideas for how you might go about restitution? I think the first thing I need to do is take responsibility for all of my actions and really train myself to operating properly, following all the rules, and just giving complete transparency. That's where things need to start, but there's definitely a bigger picture. So just kind of giving you some more background. The Fire Festival was never supposed to be about expensive ticket packages or promises of top food and glamorous accommodations. It really just took a life of its own. It started because it was about this desire I had, really a need to share this little island paradise that I stumbled upon and all the magic that I was finding on this island. And I was just so desperate to share it with as many people as I could. And what people don't know is that the Fire Festival was really the culmination of dozens of trips or really many festivals that I ran to these islands in the years before fire. It started first with Magnesis, where we took these small old propeller planes and flew them from New York to the small islands of the Exumas and eventually grew to taking a lot of fire apps talent. And it was during these trips where a childhood friend said, you should totally do a treasure hunt on these islands for Magnesis members if the real Fire Festival was spawned. So I'm sure people have seen highlights or videos or clips from the various talent or entertainers or people or many members who have come to these islands. But what those trips are really about was what if you bring 12 people, 24 people, 3 dozen people to this one little remote island and have them just spend three or four days together with adventure and trying to make the inaccessible accessible and just spending time, quality time with people they wouldn't usually spend time with and seeing what kind of relationships come by way of that. And as this worked on a small scale and as it grew, the idea for the Fire Festival was to expose thousands of people to this. And along the way, I obviously totally messed up. And more importantly, I hurt a lot of people. So I think before we get to the real dream and vision that I've been putting together, I need to take full responsibility and I need to take the first steps towards rebuilding trust. And I think it really starts and ends with trust. So while this podcast will focus on connecting different people, 
it's really about the foundation of using the podcast to build trust and doing good. I love to almost tell people what I'm going to do on the podcast and then do it. And that's the only way to build trust. The documentaries would have us believe that all the artists and laborers, suppliers never got paid at all. I can tell that that's not true by the bank statements. And I know that you're not in a position to do so now, but if you could go to the Bahamas, what would you say to the people there who work to build the festival grounds, suppliers, vendors, etc.? I have a couple of uh, close friends who remain in the Bahamas, and I've spent a lot of time talking to them to understand the damage of who was hurt and what really happened. One of our most critical team members in the Bahamas actually died of a heart attack like six months ago, and he had put a lot in the line to make the uh, event a success, and I feel completely indebted to him. And that news just, it crushed me for a while, and it's kind of like, as much as I can talk about, you know, making plans or trying to make amends, it's, it needs to go so much deeper with that, and I don't think I have the answers right now other than I'm sorry, and I'm, I feel the pain, and I'm living with the pain. And I don't know if it can ever be made up for it, but I'll certainly try. And I don't think I appreciated trust enough. I was young and took it for granted, this idea of trust where people just put their blind trust into me, and I took it too far and I ran too far. And sitting on the other side of the coin now from jail, where trust is really like life or death, trust is everything in jail, and realizing that I was the one who violated trust for thousands of people, and now I'm asking for others to trust and really needing others to trust, kind of a fucked up situation and really brings to light like what actually happened. I think one of the hardest things to swallow is realizing that you put people in situations that legitimately impact their life for a significant period of time. And there's no excuse, and I'm sorry for that. There are a lot of people that were hurt. So I, these are two examples, and I, unfortunately, I don't know the exact numbers and stuff like that for everything that's out there. And I know the overall total is just a scary, crazy, almost like unfathomable amount. And I think the only thing I can do is by doing the right thing every day, trying to pay that back, you know, one step at a time. And it's not going to happen in a week or a month or even a year. But following the rules, you know, operating within the allowed boundaries and trying to create some value and dedicating all of that value back to everybody that was hurt. That's not enough, but I think the only appropriate response is to spend my time and spend my life and spend the next couple of years doing nothing but that. I dream of being in a place where I can provide some sort of help or value or good back to the various people that were hurt. And I know that means something different for a lot of people who, who were hurt, but like that's the dream and that's the motivation, that's the goal. It's literally dreaming of being in that position. You've heard the expression, fake it till you make it. It's pretty popular in Silicon Valley. Did you feel like you were just this close or was there something else going on here? Because you kind of you tried for Bezos and you ended up with Theranos instead. So one thing I had learned through my earlier companies years before FIRE was like I, I tried to instill in myself the idea of to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that had a lot of good, but also a lot of bad with it, where it always led me to push for more. So whenever I was at a certain point in, it, in my career, in my company, it quickly felt inadequate and I wanted to do more. And I felt like I owed it to everybody around me to do more. And I was kept finding that what seemed like a total fantasy or, or far-fetched dream one day, a week later, would have been surpassed and then seemed almost like boring or irrelevant and needing to then once again push to the next level to keep things pushing. And this whole idea of living where things were never enough, it, that wasn't going to end well. And ultimately, I you know lied and compromised my morals, which is awful and, and unexcusable. But I think it started with this constant push for more and acknowledging that and recognizing that I think it's really important towards moving forward to do things the right way. I need to understand like what the intentions and motives are behind the daily actions and, you know, find happiness in doing things properly and taking the appropriate steps rather than just being completely, you know, unsatisfied and looking for more. What was going on with that sort of the second arrest while you were on bail, right? Most people are on their best behavior when they're out on bail not selling tickets to events that they don't even have, right? So what was the plan for that? What was the strategy behind that? Was there a strategy behind that? This took me the longest to, I think, be truthful to myself about what really happened. I think I was just in denial for so long that I could have possibly followed up such a fucked up event with another mistake, especially while being on bail, as you said. And there's no excuse. I was just so wrong, man. I was desperate and thought I could 
dig myself out of a hole when, you know, getting arrested and being on bail is the exact opposite time where you should be doing anything. And I should have sat down and shut up and reflected on my mistakes sooner rather than trying to correct them with potentially even worse mistakes. And the only way to proceed is to operate completely differently. And I'm kind of like on this extreme transparency kick where I want to publish everything, all the numbers, all the stats, all the motivation, and just be open. And beyond the right thing, I think it's just the best way to live. If people are bonding over just knowing what each other are thinking and, and what we're trying to accomplish, like that's when the best relationships and I think are formed and values created. And like that's, that's being human. And that's what life's about. I think that's where happiness is found. So it, it was totally wrong. That was awful. And I'm sorry for that. It, it was bad. But if anything, it helped me take that complete 180 and under, understand how I should be living. You had a big vision. I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I mean, there's making a podcast about you. They make TV shows. We did an interview for ABC a couple of weeks ago. I mean, people are still interested in this. I have to wonder if there's going to be a Firefest version two. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar with maybe a little bit more of a game plan in the future? Are you going to come? I mean, I'm I'm not going to say no, right? I mean, it's a, I'm almost sad I missed the first one, although, spoiler alert, it didn't work out so well. So maybe I'm lucky I stayed home and watched it on Hulu and Netflix. But yeah, I mean, as long as I got a place to sleep that's not a FEMA tent, yeah, I mean, look, I'll be on the early enrollment list. So is there going to be a Firefest 2.0? I mean, there's a lot of brand equity in Firefest. So you told me you're coming, so I have to do it. But in all seriousness, the most important thing right now is just to take the right steps and kind of rebuild that trust before I go out and do any of that. And I know a lot of people have been saying they have plans to do another one or this or that. I just think with so many people who have been hurt or left out, kind of left out to dry, I think it's probably the best way to say it. The most important thing to do is to take steps to help them and to establish that those steps can actually be made. But if there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. What people don't really understand is that the dream of the fire festival was never about these expensive ticket packages or crazy planes or boats. It was about sharing this little island that I thought created this like ultimate magic when different people would come and spend some time there. And I really just wanted to share that magic with as many people as possible. So my plan moving forward is more about how I can use technology to connect as many people around the world as possible. And then through those connections, allow them to kind of create good and value. And then through that, if I can help everybody find their own little slice of magic, I think it's really, really cool. So whether it's a festival, a treasure on a hotel, that can all be part of it. But the real theme is how can I take this time to learn how to dedicate myself towards helping everybody let down and then take this theme of connectivity and exposure and use that to connect as many people around the world as I can. This is The Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Billy McFarland. We'll be right back. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. With Together Mode, you can bring everyone together in one space in the same virtual room. You can bring the power of true collaboration to your projects with whiteboard, drawing, sharing, and building ideas in real time all on the same page. And with Large Gallery View, you can see more of your team all at once with up to 49 people on screen all at the same time. You can even raise your hand virtually so everyone can be seen and heard. When there are more ways to be together, there are more ways to be a team. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at microsoft.com slash Teams. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. Your support of those who support us keeps us going. To learn more and get links to all the sponsors you've heard so you can check them out for yourself, go to jordanharbinger.com slash deals. And don't forget, we've got a worksheet for today's episode. That link is in the show notes at jordanharbinger.com slash podcast. And now for the conclusion of our episode here with Billy McFarland. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from William McFarland. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hang up to decline the call or to accept dial 5 now. When you were building the festival and the app, did you feel that as an entrepreneur, as a salesman, that you maybe had to sell something that didn't even exist yet in order to create it? And at what point did you go from selling something that you'd intended to build to selling an illusion or a fabrication? I think I was more worried about failing people who backed me and 
put in the effort. So whether that's working full time, whether that's investing, advising, I always had this one track mind where I needed to make everybody win and I thought my kind of like my self importance and worth would be determined whether I can make all these people who had put their faith in me win. To me the illusion was telling investors that our company was way better off than it was. And that's where the crime was committed. There was never a point where I thought, okay, we're doing a festival that we can't actually build. I was wrong, and I totally, separate from the crime, I failed at building the festival. But I'm not in jail for failing to build a festival. I'm in jail for lying about our company's numbers. I got in over my head. I tried to make it too big, too many people, and it was too much. And that led to the real problem, which was the lie. What would you recommend? What advice would you have for somebody who finds themselves in over their head, as it were, and and tempted to stretch the boundaries of what's legal, what's morally acceptable, either because they're in business or they've found themselves in, in some other venture. What would you tell that person to do? I had really smart people around me, and I could have just sat everybody down and said, look, guys, here's the reality of the situation. But I, I had this inflated concept that I could keep figuring it out. And the fact that we did keep figuring it out somehow or some way is what made the failure the failure that it was. But I should have had the, you know, understanding. And I guess I lacked the maturity to take a step back and say, you know what, this is getting ridiculous. Yes, it might have worked the past 20 days, but it, it can't keep going on forever. Looking back, when I found myself not telling everybody the full truth and the full lay of the land, that should have been the first red flag. If you feel like you have to hide things from your team members or your partners or your investors, you're doing something wrong. And not only is it wrong and immoral, it's just like you're adding unnecessary complications to your life. There's no reason why everybody who's working towards the same goal shouldn't know everything and just make it all the more likely that that goal is actually accomplished when people are on the same page. Tell me where you think people have gotten you wrong. How have you been misunderstood? Have you at all been misunderstood? You know, where do you think the media and the public have gotten something wrong about you? I think from what I've heard, there's just been a lot of stories told that aren't accurate in terms of what we have or didn't have at the festival, what we tried to do. And then next is just from getting a list of people who I think spoke. I hadn't even heard of some of them. I think the person who said he was a creative director of the company of like Fire, I never met in my entire life or never heard of. But I think there's a whole audience who, for whatever reason, just decided they didn't want to interview. And really diving into the real stories about the work that was done, but also how I made mistakes against all of that positive work. I think the lessons and the entertainment can go to so much deeper than the narrative that's been told so far. Take me back to that particular week, right? Like you're there on the island. People are coming in two days. There's not enough accommodation. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. There's not even enough toilets, no plumbing. How is it that you had villas when the site we see in the documentaries, it looks like, I mean, it's a vacant construction site. So addressing the villas first, there was a festival site which had X number of hundreds of tents, which we spent a little over a million dollars on the tents, you know, plus furniture, plus, you know, mattresses, plus everything else. Then outside of that, we had the cruise ship, plus a couple hundred villas all over Great Eczema. And as we got into a little bit before, we had literally villa rental street teams, and their entire job for the months leading up to the festival was to go to every single villa or large house they could find in the island and try to rent it. So we would take families, give them money to send them on vacation and rent their house for two weeks. And we did this in hundreds and hundreds of instances. But then there were also, like, as questions arose, we had kept having small wins along the way. Like, oh, we need more housing. Oh, shit, we just found this empty cruise ship, like, on two days' notice. What are the odds? Boom, cruise ship arrives. People get excited. Then the stage goes up, and the stage was fucking awesome. We got a really, really high-quality stage. They're blasting the music. They're playing the lights. And all of a sudden, it feels really real. So along the way, all these great little wins did happen. But then it essentially just covered up for the poor management I had overall which, you know, overrode all the good things that were being done. Like, What's going through the mind of Billy McFarlane? Paint that picture for us. So I, I don't think the number of accommodations or number of the bathrooms was actually the problem. I think it was a management decision I made that was the problem and didn't properly handle the arrival of the guests. And I think the biggest wrong decision I made on top of all the, the illegal stuff, which by far is the worst, was the night before the festival, a storm came through. And we had this kind of checklist, like the four or five final things that had to get done. And I just remember waiting hour by hour, like, when is the rain going to stop? When is the wind going to stop? When is it going to stop? We couldn't finish building everything we needed to do with the storm. And people started arriving early the next morning. And I think at that point, I made the 
decision that would like put the straw on the camel's back, which is that instead of having people come to the festival site, which would have probably worked, we sent them to a different part of the island, to this restaurant and dock area, where we sent over all of our boats and jet skis and alcohol, and essentially gave like an open bar and you know free reign of the boats and the jet skis, and tried to use that last 10 or 12 hours to get everything up to snuff. During that time, one of our trucks ran over the water line, which took out our piping, and I made a lot of other management mistakes. But by the time everybody got back, it was dark, and there wasn't enough light, and a lot of the guests were drunk, and that's where all the rumors of people getting killed started happening, and just became too overwhelmed, and that's the event was actually canceled. But the fraud was, it was so blatant, right? I mean, in the Fire app, you'd claimed $35 million in bookings, and it was more like a million and a half. You'd said you generated millions in revenue, it was more like $60,000. Like, that's not rounding up, right? That is blatantly making shit up. Were you thinking at the time, all right, this isn't right? this isn't in the realm of reality, that this is a, an actual crime? It was totally fraud, and it was totally wrong, and uh, I'm in jail for it, and I deserve to be in jail for it. My, you know, ill thought process was, I'm building a lot of, a brand of a lot of value here, and I set a time frame that is way too close to make this festival happen. I know at the end of the day, or I thought at the end of the day, the brand would gain enough value to you know, make everybody whole and make everybody financially successful. So I thought that the shortcut was to say, fuck it, let's do whatever it takes to build this because I actually know I'm creating a lot of value and I'll pay everybody back and make it all worth their while. I was totally wrong and wish I scheduled the festival for two years in advance and had been completely honest along the way. And if that meant we couldn't do it, then okay, we can't do it. And I totally fucked up, but that's what the thought process was. And it was certainly fraud and illegal. Do you think you're drawn in by the status that came with celebrities and Instagram influencers? Because Magnesis, right, the card brand, that was a pure status play. It even sold status in the, in the form of you can buy this card, you can buy this membership, you can get elite perks. Fire app was also a business that made sense and had legs, but it, it clearly didn't come with as much potential for status as a festival like Firefest. I'm trying to get to the heart of what's the draw that led to the obsession or the magical thinking that got out of control in the first place. You had your eye on a prize. You know, you've had a lot of time to reflect on that. What was it that really got you unhinged? Fire Festival started by running Magnesis member trips on something they called Magnesis Air, which is this little propeller airline that we launched to fly people to essentially uncharted territory. And the reasoning behind that was, and the reason why I started Magnesis was because I wanted my friends who worked in certain industries to meet people outside of their industry. So if they worked in tech, I wanted them to meet the people who worked in fashion or finance or entertainment because when those meetings did happen, that's when a lot of really cool things, you know, kind of came to be. And I felt like just by leaving college and moving to New York as an 18-year-old with running a tech company, I was just experiencing so much that I never thought I would experience. And every time something new or different would happen or I would go through and experience something, I wanted to share it with everybody. I wanted to share my friends, my family, and like guys, like look what's out there. You have no idea like what we found or what we're doing. And that's how Fire Festival started. I just wanted to show everybody Norman's key. I was bringing all of my friends down, and I know there's all these stories about who came up with the idea or whatever it was. The reality is, it was a high school friend who said you should totally do a treasure hunt on Norman's for your Magnus members, and that's how the Fire Festival started. It was just this dream of sharing it with people. A lot of people have said, and even the court documents have said, Billy McFarland is subject to magical thinking. He's prone to magical thinking. What do you think about that? What do you have to say to those people who think that you're thinking too big? I think that if you look at every great innovation in the world, uh, whether technology, architecture, medicine, all those concepts started as a crazy idea in someone's head. The magical thinking wasn't where I went wrong. It was how I embarked on that. And I embarked on it by lying and trying to take a shortcut. One thing Jail has taught me is like our brains are constantly trying to give us excuses or reasons not to take the hard path, not to put in the hard work, and not to make ourselves suffer. And that's what we need to embrace. We need to acknowledge that and say, you know what, the hard path is the right way. It's not worth it to take the shortcut to go faster because things don't work. So I made the bad decision to lie to try to get what I wanted faster than I deserve to get it. And that's where I totally fucked up. So you think moving forward when you get out, I mean, are you going to start a business venture? I know you're barred from having a C-suite or director position in a business, but if there's one thing I know about entrepreneurs and business owners, it's that you're hardwired that way most of the time. I mean, you, you of all people, any entrepreneur, 
it's like a fish out of water if you have to go get a job in a pre-existing organization and stick with that kind of thing. It's just not the way, it's just not your nature. Do you see yourself having problems with that upon release? The first thing I need to do is prove that I can operate within the boundaries and show that I'm dedicated through whatever venture it is to dedicating all those value or, or good to helping those I hurt. But of course, I have a plan and I have a vision that I'm looking forward to creating. And once again, nothing makes you want to build more than being locked in a cage. A lot of people think that you were scamming from the get-go, right? I was getting a haircut the other day and the barber's like, there's money stashed somewhere. So I'm not totally sure about that. I heard you had your family on the island. And if this whole thing was a con from the get-go, rarely would you expect somebody who's doing that from the jump to bring their family to the scene of the crime if the whole thing is just one big lie. I legitimately thought the festival was going to be executed. You know, some of like the last minute things that we did in the week or so before, which you'll go through and see in the statements, there's been a lot of talk about housing. We needed more housing. So we actually found and chartered a cruise ship in like the week before the festival and had that parked right off site. And it got to a point where we were running these cargo barges almost like two weekly between Fort Lauderdale and Great Exuma. And I believe our last barge got there Tuesday and the first guests were scheduled to arrive on Thursday. We still needed to bring over more mattresses and more materials. So we started chartering cargo planes that would take a container and fly it from the U.S. to the Bahamas. And then we truck that container over to the festival site. So you're going to see a lot of those, you know, cargo plane charges in there as well. And like finally, we couldn't wait for mattresses to get shipped from China. So we literally went on Amazon and bought a million dollars of mattresses, had them shipped to Fort Lauderdale and brought those over on the boat and the planes. So we were doing everything right up until the last minute. And should I have seen that things weren't going well? Absolutely. More importantly, was I committing fraud to my investors and partners? Yes, and that's a big issue. But the attempt and the effort was to put everything I had, which I believe the statements show, and try to make this thing work. Unless what I'm looking at from the bank statements is not legit somehow, you know what I'm seeing here? It seems like a lot of work to fabricate something like this just for little old me, but I'm getting a little stressed out just looking at all the money going in and out of these accounts, and I can imagine how you felt spending $5.4 million in a matter of weeks. I see that you're paying for flight service. I see that you're paying for wireless service. There are other charges on here that are significant that I can only imagine are to vendors. It's very clear that you were trying to do something, pull something off here. When I've done other investigative reporting to put a, a very fancy spin on looking at <laughs> looking at a PDF, when I look at other scams, they just look different. I'm not saying that this didn't turn into something that it wasn't meant to be, but it's clear from what I'm looking at right now that this wasn't all empty promises. Bad management, yes, but it's hard to look at this and say, oh, he never planned on having a festival on this island at that time. I can't really come to that conclusion. It would be impossible. But it also, you were dealing with some pretty high-flying folks looking at the names on these statements. I mean, you are obviously very convincing and well-connected. A lot of people who were supporting, I took their trust, liked them, and violated that. And I want them to know how seriously I take that. And for everybody else, it doesn't matter, you know, who may or may not have lost money or who was involved. Simply lying about our numbers to get more money to, to spend it, whether I thought it was right or wrong, is just, that's fucked up. And I deserve to be where I am. I know I've learned, and I hope for a chance, but it, it's going to be a long road to get there. I just want to, to acknowledge that no matter how different the picture may be as to what's been portrayed, the underlying crime is bad, and, and there's no getting around it. What's your biggest regret, 2020 hindsight? Lying and misunderstanding the value and importance of trust and how leading isn't about just foraging and venturing into new ground. It's about being the last person there and being the support system. So everything you say is happening at the front, happens throughout, and being the person that things can fall back on and delivering. And that's where I failed. There's really responsibility in all of these dreams and ideas, and they're not just dreams and ideas. To make them real, you need to own that responsibility. And I lost sight of that, and I'm sorry. What's one thought you want to leave people with today? I still think I don't know how to apologize. I've tried writing people letters. I've spoken to them on the phone, and rightfully so, everything has mixed results. So it's just kind of been a thought process where I know what I'm sorry for. I know what I want to say. It's probably a unique situation for every person, and I need to understand that my apologies probably won't be accepted. And if they do, eventually, it'll take years and years. And, but I hope to show you over the next couple of years, through actions and through the transparency, my intentions on making this up to you in some small way. So 
thank you for believing me at one time. I took advantage of you. It's fucked up. It's not going to happen again. And I'm going to dedicate myself. I'm trying to show you how seriously I take this. I really appreciate your candor here. I mean, what do you sort of dream about? I mean, of course, freedom, but is there anything like your favorite food or something like that that you're just like, man, I'm, you wake up at night and you're upset you can't get a Philly cheesesteak? I'm just curious. I would do a lot of things for shrimp. I don't care how old, how frozen. <laughs> I'd love some shrimp. <laughs> I've got some thoughts on this episode, but before I get into that, here's a trailer from my interview with Layla Ali, daughter of legendary boxer Muhammad Ali. She's got a great story about how she ended up the only other boxer in her family and how she carries her father's legacy. Whether you're into sports or not, I think you're really going to dig it. You have to have it in you to want to be a fighter. It's not something that you just go, oh, I think I'll just try boxing, you know, because you're going to get your ass beat if you get in there and you don't have it in you. When you get that opportunity, it it was a brawl. I mean, it was bloody. It was like crazy. And I was like, I want to do that. You would think anyone punching you would hurt, right? Yeah, sure. But as fighters, it's like, oh, that person can punch. That person can't. Tapping you. Tap, tap, tap. And then every once in a while, that bam, that hard one. Ooh, okay, I felt that. If you're listening to your camp saying she's nothing and she this and she that, and then you have to get your ass in there and then you feel that punch like, no, she can punch. Uh-huh. No, she's not just a pretty man. You see me across that ring looking at you like, yeah, remember all that stuff you talk? Now it's about to happen. Just me and oh, you. Nobody else can get in there with you, you know? And it's like, I'm going to remind you of all the things you said. They didn't know that street side of me. Not everyone has that. You don't have to. Sure. But I do. Now you get to meet someone. You to see how they walk. See how they hold this stuff. You see if there's any fear in their eyes. What was your father's reaction to you wanting to box? He didn't like it. No? No. You guys were sparring before you even put the gloves on. Oh, yeah. He supported me, though. He came to a lot of my fights. He couldn't beat all of them. I could always see that glare in his eyes of him being proud. And just to come into that arena and having everyone chanting, Ali, Ali. And you just see him light up. To see me in that ring and him just remembering himself. Our boxing styles were similar. The way I'm shaped, my body shape. So just seeing all of that had to be a super crazy experience for him. For more with Layla Ali, check out episode number 309 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Thanks to Billy for doing the show. Look, I know a lot of people love to hate this guy, and I understand that, but I think there's something to be said. He wanted to get his message out here, and you know, there's a part of me that really does feel a little bit for somebody who's in their 20s and is having their 20s and early 30s slash their entire life, potentially, defined by this, and is locked away for a while. I mean, no matter how much you might think somebody deserves a punishment that they're getting. It is sometimes a little bit painful to see a nonviolent criminal in a cage, even if they might deserve the punishment that they had coming to them. Now, I found it interesting that during a press conference, Ja Rule introduced Billy as his partner in crime. I mean, that just turned out to be literally the case, although Ja never actually faced, it's so weird calling somebody Ja, he never faced any punishments with this. In fact, he's now all, I didn't know anything about it, which I find almost impossible to believe. They also have merch, uh, merchandise. Among the mementos of Firefest are sweatpants, shirts, tokens that are emblazoned with, and I'm not even kidding, quote, a conspiracy to change the entertainment world. I mean, okay, interesting choice of words. Billy really did undergo trial by documentary, and I do wonder, is this the new Billy McFarlane that we're hearing, or is this the same Billy McFarlane that tried to pull off Fire Festival? Is there a Billy version too? Because a lot of what we heard today might be similar to what we've heard before. And look, the guy is convincing. If you saw the documentary, you know there was one guy, Andy, who was literally about to take one for the team in order to clear some containers of water that were shipped to the island for the festival. If you haven't seen the documentary, well, I won't spoil that little tidbit for you. Let's just say you're gonna rewind to make sure you actually understood what he was saying. You might even rewind two or three times because it's that unbelievable. Is he a genius who just got too big for his britches, or is he merely a con man? You be the judge. Also, you can find more from Billy McFarland in the Dumpster Fire, F-Y-R-E podcast. Dumpster Fire, we'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks to Notorious Network for making this happen for me. They're the ones who do the Dumpster Fire podcast. I highly encourage you to go have a listen. I certainly will be doing so. There's a worksheet for today's episode in the show notes, a transcript for today's episode in the show notes. There's no video of this interview. There's a video of me talking on a phone if you want to see it. We'll put some clips up on the YouTube channel. JordanHarbinger.com slash YouTube is where you can find us there. I'm at Jordan Harbinger on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also hit me on LinkedIn. I'm teaching you how to connect with great people and manage relationships using systems and tiny habits 
over at our six-minute networking course that's free. It's over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. Dig the well before you get thirsty. Many of the guests on the show, with a few obvious exceptions, contribute to the course. Come join us. You'll be in smart company. This show is created in association with Podcast One. And, of course, my amazing team. That includes Jen Harbinger, Jay Sanderson, Robert Fogarty, Ian Baird, Millie Ocampo, Josh Ballard, and Gabriel Mizrahi. Remember, we rise by lifting others. The fee for this show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. If you know someone who will be interested in this story, Firefest really did make the rounds. Please do share this with them. Hopefully you find something great in every episode of the show. Please do share the show with those you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on this show so you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com slash Teams.